The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you become a member yet? Sign up. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good morning. This is Mitch Winnick. Good afternoon to some of our listeners. This is Wagner and Winnick on the law. This is Mitch Winnick, and I am the president and dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and opening this summer, Kern County College of Law. And I will be joined this morning by Stephen Wagner, my co-host. We're very excited about broadcasting live with voiceamerica.com, but I want our terrestrial radio stations, KSCO, KVEC, KION, and KERN to know that we will be providing streaming to you as well. So all of our listeners for those stations, you will continue to hear us on our regular scheduled time. But this morning, very early and very bright, we are broadcasting live from voiceamerica.com across the nation and internationally. A very exciting new start for us. Today we're going to talk about the transition to power. What's going on in the United States is a transition from President Obama to President Trump. And it is not a surprise that those transitions raise legal issues. And for those of our long-term listeners, you know that is what we talk about on Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Legal issues that affect all of us, and it would be pretty hard to argue that the transition of power of the President of the United States is not a legal issue that affects all of us. So in a little bit, Stephen and I are going to talk about some of the last issues related to President Obama leaving office. Many of you noticed that the President had pardons and commutations that he issued in the last moments of his presidency. And that is very common. That is not an unusual event. That is one of the constitutional rights granted to the president. So that's one of the things that we're going to talk about today as well. The other thing we're going to talk about is the transition of coming into power as president of the United States. And we've had a long stretch here from November when there was an election and we elected the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And now on January 20th, he was sworn in as the newest President of the United States. So the President has a lot of things they have to do in a relatively short time. What we're going to talk about today, though, are issues that have been raised related to conflicts of interest. And 
what I would like to say uh, as we initiate this discussion is that it is not an issue of politics that we're going to talk about. You may have political opinion about the policies of the president. What we want to focus on are the laws behind those issues. They may have political impact. I won't deny that. They may have political impact. But that's not our, our initial interest in this. It's to understand the laws so that when, when you and I hear it discussed during the pre- on the press and on the news and in the newspapers and on the blogs, we have a better idea of what the background is. So let me start initially with this discussion of the emoluments clause. I have to admit, I had never heard of it. I've been a lawyer since the 1970s. Graduated from law school in 1978, licensed to practice law in 1979. I had constitutional law as a lawyer. I had constitutional law in high school as a history class. I had never heard of the emoluments clause. Turns out that the emoluments clause is in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the Constitution. I had to look it up, which is another good lesson for all of us, that if you don't know what the law is, look it up. There's so much access, easy access. Just type it in to Google and you'll get a pretty good initial answer. And if you don't like that answer, you can scroll right down the the opportunities to read from different sources. So Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the United States Constitution bans federal officers from, among other things, accepting without the consent of Congress payments and gifts of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. So there's a couple pieces to the Emoluments Clause. First of all, the question is, does it apply to the President of the United States? There are a number of laws related to conflicts of interest that apply to federal officers and the executive branch. We're going to talk about, after the first break, about some of the other laws that clearly do not apply to the President, Vice President of the United States. And you might ask, why? Why wouldn't they apply? Specifically, they don't apply because that's what the law says. Congress was very clear in passing a number of these conflicts of interest laws that they could apply them to themselves, they could apply them to other administrative agencies, but they did not choose to apply them to the President and the Vice President of the United States. So when you hear discussion about laws conflict of interest laws and rules that don't apply to the president, vice president, the answer is that's true, and we'll talk specifically about those a little later. But the emoluments clause in the Constitution of the United States does apply, and it applies to all federal officers, including the president and the vice president. Just this week, there was a lawsuit filed related to the emoluments clause, And that is meaningful because in the entire history of the Constitution, 
the emoluments clause is one of those rare clauses that has never been tested in court. It has never had a lawsuit filed to challenge the definitions or to help get a judicial interpretation of how it should be applied. So the lawsuit filed this week with a group called CREW, and that's an acronym for the Center for, or it's actually, it's an acronym for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, C-R-E-W, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. That group, nonprofit group, filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violation of the emoluments clause. And so now you have to take that lawsuit and ask a couple of key questions. First of all, is there standing? And standing is an interesting legal concept, but a very important one. One that most of us don't think about. If if you were injured in a civil matter, so somebody injures you, not criminal, civil, so you're damaged, your property is damaged, you're allowed to bring suit in court because you're the damaged party. You have standing. If there's a statute that says you are protected and someone violates that statute and you are injured, you have standing. It means you have the right. It's the literal definition that you have the legal authority to, quote, stand in court and bring your case. The question under the emoluments clause, remember, it has never been tried in a court of law before. The question is, does a citizen or a group of citizens or a nonprofit have standing under the clause in the Constitution to bring that lawsuit against the president? So what's the alternative argument? The alternative argument is that only Congress has rights under the Constitution to bring a claim against the president under the emoluments clause. So the very first thing that's going to be tested in this lawsuit is not the merit, but who can bring the lawsuit and whether this group is allowed to bring the suit or do we have to wait for Congress to take action? Congress would not bring it as a lawsuit. Congress would bring it as an impeachment action. And that's a much more complicated, but very prescribed process under which Congress would exercise their rights. So the very first thing we're going to watch as this lawsuit takes its first steps in court is Not an argument as to whether or not the president has or has not violated the emoluments clause. The very first question raised is going to be, does this suit even have the right or the authority to be brought in in court? If it does, then we will start the regular process that many of us have seen in in a civil case, which is the, the steps related to uh, evidence, there'll be testimony, there'll be depositions, there'll be all of those steps that we see on TV and on movies that go through a civil case. Uh, 
Now, I must tell you that you might think that this, although it's a novel idea that there's just, somebody's just taking a flyer on filing this lawsuit, but, but the fact is there are some very respected lawyers who have been, that are supporting CREW, the Citizens for Responsibility Ethics in Washington, who are working on behalf of this lawsuit. These are not people who take these things lightly and they are constitutional experts. Uh, individuals like Professor Lawrence Tribe and Zephyr Teachout, Erwin uh, Cheraminsky, Dean of the University of California Irvine School of Law, and the author of the constitutional law book that we use in our law school to teach constitutional law. And you're talking about very highly educated individuals related to the Constitution, understanding the Constitution who have brought this lawsuit. So simply put, as we wrap up before the, the first break here, what, what is the basis of this suit? So the, the claim is that the President of the United States, because he didn't divest himself from his business interests, whenever one of the companies he owns and has, uh, has business interests in, so he receives profit from those businesses. When any one of those receives, as the, the Constitution says, a payment or gift of any kind from a king, prince, or foreign state, so that could be a consulate, that could be foreign dignitaries traveling and staying at a hotel that Trump's companies own. I mean, it's a broad definition. Any payments or gifts of any kind. If you own the company and profit from the company that receives those gifts, the argument is going to be made that that is a violation of the emoluments clause. After the break, we're going to talk a little about what President Trump has done in order to what he believes, and obviously his legal advisors believe, have separated him from that potential conflict of interest. And that, that we will discuss because historically that has been achieved very simply by presidents. I say simply, it's, it's, it'd be a complicated business transaction, but legally very simply by the president divesting, selling their interests in the companies that could have the potential conflict. And therefore, they remove themselves from that conflict. They're not receiving payments they're not receiving profits. So the question that will come up is, what does it take to be far enough distance from that business transaction to not violate the conflict of interest? Now, we can look after the break and talk about a number of the other laws that what we'll do is, is even though the emoluments clause, oh, time for our first break. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. And we know this is going to be a challenging issue that's not going to be resolved in this first week. Look forward to hearing from you. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. 
established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Wagner. Stephen, I've, I've been talking about, I jumped into the emoluments clause because I know you wanted to be, me to wait and talk about pardons and commutations so that you could weigh in on that being our prosecutor. I know you have a few opinions about pardons and commutations. Yeah, I do, yeah, Mitch, I, and, and, and thanks for uh, letting me join in. I knew you were going to start with emoluments clause. And I wanted to address the issue of commutations and pardons. Obviously, it's in the news, and it's always in the news anytime there's a transition in power, certainly, um, nationally and statewide, because governors can also often issue orders that dramatically impact sentences, criminal sentences. And I think there's probably a, a bit of a misunderstanding out there in regards to the difference between pardons and 
commutations. And that's one thing I had talked to you about first. And I kind of wanted to start with that point. Yeah, I think that's a great one because as I introduced the show, I said, you know, the transition of power always raises legal issues, uh, both going out for the outgoing president, in this case, President Obama, and the incoming president, in this case, President Trump. And that one of the last things that presidents do are, is this issue of pardons and commutations. So what? why should they be allowed to do that? I mean, I know that's just not wrapped up in the Constitution itself, but why is that okay? Why do governors and presidents end up with the right to that? As a prosecutor, it probably is not always something you jump on and agree with right away, I suspect. Well, <laughs> is that a fair statement? No, You've got a lot of work to find these people guilty, and now somebody jumps in and goes, ah, never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I'll make a couple of comparisons, Mitch, that I think are helpful. So, in the state and county level, so I would speak to the issue of how expungements can happen. So, for instance, a criminal record could be expunged. Somebody that suffers a conviction, a felony conviction, for instance, can seek procedural processes by which the felony is reduced to a misdemeanor, and then ultimately a record could be expunged. So on a grander scale, when you look at things like pardons or commutations that are issued by the president, uh, it has really a more indelible effect. The pardon is is really uh, an, an order that is issued after somebody has suffered or served their sentence. So, right, and the actual it, result of the pardon is it's wiped clean. So yeah, it, it is. Although, although there's well, there's full and there's conditional pardons. So there's a little okay. bit of a difference there as far as a clean slate, as you've said. Uh, a conditional pardon comes with strings attached. Is probably a good way to explain that. Uh, there may be instances where a bit more of a sentence needs to be served in a conditional pardon scenario, but a full pardon is the one that I think really has uh, a broader effect in terms of uh, diminishing most of the stigmas. For instance, you can be restored your your rights to vote. You can be restored of your rights to carry and uh, use a firearm. Uh, Those are the and, two biggest ones that most people are familiar with is that You've lost your right to vote. You've lost your right to, to own and carry a firearm. And with a full pardon, those rights are restored. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's and those are the those are the, the stigmas that are associated with most convictions. You know, for instance, if, if you looked at it in the state, uh, an individual who suffered a felony conviction loses their right to vote. And it, it can only be restored if there's a reduction to a misdemeanor and then an expungement. So on a grander scale, the pardon has a similar effect. On the other hand... The commutation is a shortening of a sentence. So that's not uh, the same or of the same significance as a pardon. Just essentially what we might hear of is time served, right? You've, you've done your time, and we're going to say, regardless of what the court or the jury assigned to you as your punishment, we're going to say enough's enough. You're, you've served your time. But the record still stands. You just had it commuted. You were, you're being let out earlier. That's right. That's right. Okay. So, so those are you important know, distinctions. It's, it's, you know, traditionally, Mitch, it's been, you asked me originally, you know, where does this power come from? You know, it's part of the executive 
power of the president, certainly. Uh, and it's one of those outgoing acts that always seems to be sometimes kind of the cherry on top. You know, it's, it's interesting that that's traditionally, if you look back historically, that's one of the last acts that a president really, really does. Um, of course, with Obama's, President Obama's exit, of course, there was many other things um, that he did, but uh, it's a long it's, list. I mean, there's a public record right. kept of all those. Yeah. Well, I was looking here. It's, it, presidents have been doing it since 1789. It was built right into the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2. And George Washington issued 16 pardons as the first president of the United States. So he broke in that part of the Constitution just fine. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And you as they say, what, what, I think the historical side note was that there were only two presidents that never issued a pardon or commutation. And that, of course, would be William Harry, Henry Harrison and James Garfield because they died. <laughs> ah, ah, okay. That's right. I was going to ask you. <laughs> what the footnote? What the footnote was going to be there? Yeah, <laughs> they died before they had a chance to issue yeah. anything. They just didn't have enough time. So yeah, no. What you know? An interesting topic, Mitch, would be what happens behind the scenes as far as the uh, advocacy and the lobbying for uh, those who are hoping to be pardoned or having their sentences commuted. You know, that's. Right. Uh, Obviously, we have a legal talk show, so that's there's definitely an art form uh, connected to how somebody gets their eligibility moved up to a granting or an exercise of a pardon. Well, and, and I was shocked at the sheer volume of requests because we think that most of us would have no reason to know how many. I was just looking here, and there were over 11,000 petitions for individuals to be have their sentences commuted, presented to President Obama in just in 2016, there were over a thousand petitions requested for pardons. So, so we look at the numbers, and some people might be, say, they, you know, they're shocked at the, the the number of commutations or pardons that Obama issued. But if you look in the context of how many that were requested. Uh, that's it's enormous, you know, tens of yeah, thousands. Yes. So, it's a uh, it's the ultimate. And then, if someone doesn't like the commutation or pardon by a president, a president, do they have any recourse? I I don't think there is any recourse. Um, for instance, if they're denied because it's a, an executive act, I really don't think there is a procedural recourse. Uh, there, there may be some recourse that's connected to how the sentencing is reduced um, mm-hmm. and whether or not there's accurate credits for sentencing, because that's another issue that is that's overlapping here. Uh, there is credits given for the amount of time that somebody's served, and sometimes there's some disputes over that, but how do you procedurally challenge an executive order? Yeah, and it's an executive order that comes direct flows authority flows directly from the Constitution. So it's, that, it's that's right. Pretty difficult. And then I guess the other we talked I talked briefly about the constitutional power and the presidency, and I guess in theory, if a president abused it, in theory, 
Congress act answer is is to uh, they would have to impeach them. But if you're doing it in the last hours of your presidency, well, you're like so long, see ya. <laughs> There's yeah, not much yeah. they can do. You've pretty well blunted the one uh, authority Congress always have has over the executive, that of impeachment. Well, you're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's in part where I was going when I referenced sort of the cherry on top, or it's the outgoing act. You know, in an odd way, uh, it is an act that's done during the president's exit or departure from office. And the only challenge to that would be to argue that it was an abuse of executive power. And if you look historically at challenges, uh, there really isn't a lot of precedent for things being overturned. Yeah. So it's... It's, it was the last thing, it's the last thing, as you mentioned, that we usually think of as the president. We know in this case, President Obama uh, addressed a number of executive actions in the waning hours of his presidency. And, and we talked about this, the shows talking about the legal transition of power from one president to the other. What we're seeing right away is President Trump steps in. And if Obama has the power to have executive action by the power of the pen, Trump has the same power coming in, and we're seeing him use it. That, that's true, Mitch. And the other thing uh, that will be beneficial for us, because ours is a legal talk show, we will now have the opportunity to weave in a lot of political intrigue, and those issues are certainly inextricably tied. So the change in leadership actually gives us a lot of new material and some intriguing issues. Uh, of course, we will be talking about executive orders made by President Trump because they impact a lot of legal issues that you and I have talked about before. And I'll just tee one up right now. Immigration. Yeah, no question, no question about it. Uh, that one in the, the orders that were signed yesterday, this week, uh, for, by President Trump and some preview of orders that evidently are in the drafting stage are going to raise questions that we did full shows on. As That's to right. That's the, right. What are the rights of what you can do under the Constitution uh, related to immigration? And we're going to have to dust those issues off and remind everyone uh, who has who has who has rights. Now, there's yeah, and we we will also need to keep our eye on a potential change in criminal statutes also, Mitch, which is interesting in cases that arise out of California, for instance, where there have been horrific criminal acts committed by deportees. I'm thinking now about San Francisco in particular, where right. we'll, we'll have uh, movement in both the House and the Senate on, on potential bills to increase punishment ranges. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in that regard. Yeah, that, that will become a, that we'll definitely dedicate a show or two on this issue because, you know, we just, even in the discussion yesterday of increasing the immigration forces, uh, doing away with what has been called catch and release, uh, you know, we have a challenge of, I saw in the news yesterday a half million individuals are pending in immigration court, and there's only 34,000 places to incarcerate them, even temporarily. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's, so yeah, a half million versus 34,000, 
you, know, you can have all the laws you want, but that you're going to have a hard time resolving that kind of a disparity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll that's, also I mean, that's not a political it. issue. That's just the practical reality of, of you know, if you're going to incarcerate people or something, you have to have a place to put them. Yes, yeah, that, that is true. We'll also be looking at sanctuary cities and policies and municipalities, cities and counties, and need to open up that one for a separate show. I suspect our constitutional law professor, Michael Cohen, is going to have no problem wanting to talk about the powers between the federal and the state, because the minute you open up that concept of the federal government weighing in on sanctuary cities, uh, sanctuary states in some cases, now there you have beautiful setup for a constitutional discussion of where does the power lie? What can the federal government do? What can the state governments do? Where do the authorities of cities flow as well? Yes, you're right, because it, it will implicate the Tenth Amendment, police power, and the rights of the state. It'll be a fascinating issue for sure. You know, so we're rolling into our second break here in just, just a little less than a minute, but so when we come back after that break, I'd like to let's pick back up on this theme of transition. And I, I spent the initial thing talk, initial segment talking about the emoluments clause, describing what it is. But we didn't really get into what the President Trump's response is. And so we'll, we'll want to talk about that when we come back at, and, and discuss the, the issues of how that will be resolved. So as I would tell everyone, don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We'll be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. 
The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Back listening to Wagner Law. This is Mitch Winnick. I'm the president and dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host Stephen Wagner, who's a prosecutor, lawyer, law professor, particularly in the areas of criminal law and evidence. We've been talking initially about the transition of power between presidents, in this case President Obama to President Trump. The two Biggest issues that came up immediately on transition was the outgoing president's constitutional right to issue pardons and commutations, which President Obama has done, similar to every president since George Washington, except for the two who passed away before they had the chance to do that. Incoming issue, we've had the very first question raised was a conflict of interest. And in the first section, I talked about the emoluments clause in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the Constitution. That does apply to the president. And we talked briefly about, although certain laws under the U.S. statutes apply to Congress and other executives. They do not apply to the president, but the Constitutional Emoluments Clause does. And there has been a lawsuit filed by uh, the Citizens for Ethical Responsibility in Washington with several constitutional lawyers backing that lawsuit that say that the president's ownership of businesses that are receiving payments from foreign governments is a violation of the emoluments clause. And, and Stephen, where I left that was this concept of standing. And I talked about the question of whether someone has standing to bring a suit. And and I, I talked about it very briefly, but let's let's start let's pick back up there. Why why yeah, is this question of standing such an, uh, an important issue? As a threshold issue before somebody can get in to court to have a matter addressed, there needs to be an established connection of harm. And what usually happens by way of analysis is that are they an aggrieved party? Can they cite to something that actually qualifies them as suffering some kind of a harm? And Typically, you've got to be able to identify it with clarity. In other words, it can't be something that you anticipate in the future or something that's speculative. It really needs to be uh, quite evident that harm is suffered now. And that's typically what courts look at right away. 
And that's definitely a front and center issue. And I think you're right to identify that as one of the threshold concerns. So if a case fails on standing, I, I described earlier, and I was just double checking with you. So if a f- case fails on standing, you never get to the substantive question, do you? you yeah, just, yeah. You know, say the court just says you don't get to stand here and make that argument. Goodbye. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And, you know, and it's a pretty, you know, it's a harsh one because it really means that your uh, your grievance doesn't actually get to a platform where the merits can be discussed because you just don't have a stake in the action. That's the way I would explain it and often do when I'm speaking with students. There needs to be evidence of direct harm, sometimes some indirect harm, but the courts look very carefully at, do we really have the right party? And if you think carefully about that one, Mitch, that's important because if the wrong party is before the court on a very significant issue and bad law comes of it or from it, we then have some wobbly or kind of shaky precedent out there. So it's a really important theory. So this it's a reminder. The courts are not a debate society, right? You don't just get to come in and make your argument because you've got an opinion. You have to have an actual injury or uh, a grievance that, that is allowed under law to get your day in court. That's, that's a good way of looking at it, Mitch. It's not a, it's not a town hall setting. You've got to really establish why you're here and when the court assembles over a significant issue, certainly an issue like this, Mitch, the emoluments clause, and, and I heard you talk about conflict a little bit, and I think you accurately identified the fact that there's very, very uh, skilled lawyers involved in this one, coming really from both camps, if you were to kind of chalk it up as uh, how people are politically aligned, which I think is also intriguing, which leads me to believe that there might be some very, very thorough thorough and very, very well-versed arguments on this. So the part I like about this, so let's talk a little about the intrigue. You talked about political intrigue, but judges are humans too, right? Although I'm sure there are times in your career that you've had those doubts when things weren't going your way in court. Never happened. (laughs) But they, they see their place in history as well. And one of the I think one of the interesting sidebars of this lawsuit is that you know, a judge who's hearing a constitutional question for the first time in the history of the Constitution, there's a little part of them that's going to say, well, wouldn't this be cool to discuss? You know, maybe you, know, maybe yeah. you ought to give it a little more time. Maybe we'll pass the standing test and say – well, let's go a little further. I can always change my mind later, right? Mitch, <laughs> that's a great topic because, you know, it's funny that, uh, and this is to the credit of most judicial officers, certainly the ones I've been before, they maintain a really, really steady temperament and they need to be very balanced. But you've invited a discussion on, and you, you teed it up by saying they're human too, and I think you've hit a good point because when a judge is going to preside over a very novel issue, you can tell as a litigator that there's a sense of intrigue and excitement over certain issues. And, and I think that's probably where you're going. And, and there's also some nerves there, too, also. So that is a good point. And, and I, think you would agree, I think you would agree that when they want to make a mistake, you know, to, to – 
to, as we would say, pour out or deny a case based on standing. I mean, you've cut that off completely done. It's over. If you let it go forward on standing, even if it's a wobbler, as you would say, you, you can still respond to challenges later in the suit. You, you're, it's not over as a judge of being able to weigh in, but you're at least giving a little more airtime for both sides to have a chance to argue it versus cutting it off at the knees. I is, think I is think that a fair right. way that judges will tend to, you know, when in doubt, let's give it a little more play to see how the sides roll out. You know, Mitch, I'm not I'm not positive exactly how the analysis shakes out or what the thought process is with all judges, but again, you bring a good point up if there is a matter before the court that has that seemingly has merit when you look at the actual uh, operative facts and legal issues. It's probably true that some judges would look more carefully at a way to find standing. I think that's what you're implying, that, right. that, that maybe they'd be more inclined to get to the merits. And, and I have to believe that just based on the intrigue and the fascinating legal issues in certain cases... I would imagine that judges might look for a way to find standing, but that's in large part connected to there being evidence of some form of standing. I'm not. I'm certainly make a threshold case, right? Yeah, they do, and I'm. I'm not suggesting that that any judge would bypass the issue of standing, but there are different versions. There's association standing. There's indirect standing. So there's a lot of different ways that an aggrieved party can describe how they've been harmed. And I think judges will probably click on that standing window and look more carefully at it. So I, I agree with what you're, you're suggesting there. The intrigue and fascination of the issues could actually impact how standing is interpreted. I think you make a good point. So you've, you've taught us before that you know, we need to remember that case law has a lot to do with with what a current decision will, how a current decision will be weighed. So the, the lawyers have to bring precedent in to argue it. And, and I, I mentioned that the, the emoluments clause itself has never been tested, has never been litigated. But this question of standing has been litigated many times. And I, and I have to not just chuckle, but just maybe marvel at the creativity that this the initial case they're using to argue in favor of standing. And as you pointed out, these are brilliant constitutional lawyers who are on both sides of this argument. It goes back to a 1982 Supreme Court case uh, called Havens Realty versus Coleman. But what it what was argued there was that the standing was based on an organization that said the actions taken by the other party are using our time and resources to go out after them or to, to address their actions, I guess would be a better way to say it. And so the damage was that they were having to allocate time and resources to address the actions of the other party. And wow, now yeah. that so is, a, that's, that's, I think, a stretch. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me, yeah, let me choose not that. to spend your time and resources, right? Okay, so now let's think about it now. Uh, that is a good example of organizational standing, or maybe okay. even standing by association. And there's a few different ways that the courts label that. And in hearing you describe that, it, it appears at first blush that 
there's too much attenuation there. You know, there's, there's too many dots to connect in an effort to establish that there's been any kind of harm suffered. However, so, so let's use this in a, not that I want to go off in this direction, but it's something that people have been reading about this week as well. So if you're an organization such as Planned Parenthood, you're an institution, you're an organization, you're an association, and there's a proposed change in the law that would uh, change your funding or change the services you're legally allowed to provide. Now that there's no attenuation there, right? Regardless of whether you agree with it or not on the concept, there's a direct tie to an action and an, and an association. So now the question is, does this other uh, case that's arguing, well, it's not that I'm losing my funding or losing what I can do. It's just making me work harder. Yeah. So, yeah. But Mitch, here's the thing. There, it's, there, it's not necessarily a major novel issue to argue that depleting resources okay. qualifies as harm. Okay. So, so I'm actually, I'm not going to say endorsing the argument of organizational standing that's spinning off the uh, Havens Realty case, I think, for a power source. Uh, I think it, it is potentially an argument that might get traction. I mentioned attenuation because whenever you articulate or claim association standing, there's some distance issues. I called it connecting the dots. Almost by definition. That's true. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this, I would have never expected when we started this conversation that if it were you and I, arguing this standing case in front of the judge, that it sounds like you would be have been standing there arguing in favor of standing, at least the threshold, and I would be arguing probably against it. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> see, that's yeah. the beauty of the law. Uh, yeah. <laughs> someone might have, someone might have spiked my coffee. I'm not sure, Mitch, but <laughs> the, the, the message, and just from a legal standpoint, is right. that organizational standing or association standing, by definition, comes with attenuation. And it's a heavier lift. It's more difficult to establish than direct harm. Right. So, uh, and, and again, to weave it back into the emoluments clause, and I think you reached this also in the open, Mitch, is that the action would center on conflicts, optics of a conflict, and various arguments raised that would suggest that President Trump's business affiliations still place him in a position where he may benefit. And I think that's what we're talking about above all when we look at the emoluments clause. Of course, we focused previously on gifts or any kind of evidence to suggest that the president benefits. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. As always... We remind you that you can listen to an archive of our show on voiceamerica.com, where we're on the business channel. You can also go to wagnerandwinnick.com. Please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby, and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 